Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Vijay Boyapati, author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Vijay worked for a small startup called Google before leaving to help support Ron Paul's presidential campaign in 2008. Vijay was introduced to Bitcoin in 2011 and has been a student of it since then. His seminal essay, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, is a must-read for any Bitcoin newbie. He has now turned this foundational essay into a book available on Amazon. We discuss Vijay's early life and the lasting impression it had on him to ready him for Bitcoin adoption. We discuss current headline news with the fall of Kabul to the Taliban and how Bitcoin could be used to preserve wealth for those fleeing. Most importantly, we find out what profession almost claimed BJ before he settled on mathematics and computer science. This was a fun and fantastic discussion. I know that you will enjoy this discussion with Vijay Boyapati. And now a word about our sponsors. Jeter Melder LLP is more than a law firm. It is a legal team. Justin and Michael have over 30 years of experience working with different clients on different legal issues from both sides of the docket, including business disputes, constitutional rights, employment agreements, employment discrimination, local counsel, and pay issues. Jeter Melder have advocated in federal and state courts in Arkansas, California, Illinois, New Mexico, and Texas. With a unique blend of clients from doctors, fellow attorneys, tradesmen, hourly workers, the unemployed, to small businesses and Fortune 500 companies, they all have one thing in common. They believe in Jeter Melder, and Jeter Melder believes in them. Give them a call at 214-699-4758 or visit them at JeterMelder.com. That's J-E-T-E-R-M-E-L-D-E-R.com. Have Jeter Melder work for you. Well, thanks, BJ. Thanks for joining me. It's uh, such a pleasure, uh, such an honor to have you here. Um, I know most of the audience knows who you are. Uh, I'm sure most of us have read your work, but uh, for maybe those who are new in the space, just kind of give us a a brief outline of you know who you are, what you do, and um, as you know, as we talked about, I really want to kind of dive into your personal story and you know how Bitcoin could have potentially affected uh, your family's movement uh, when you were a young boy. And um, yeah, so let's just start with who you are and what you're doing right now. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, uh, Patrick. I really appreciate it. And, you know, you've got a great story, too. You just told me before we started recording. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so my name is Vijay. I'm uh, from Australia originally. I was born and raised in Australia. Uh, I, I went through school and I was really interested in computers and my training is in computer science. I came to the US to do a PhD in computer science, but uh, ultimately didn't pursue that PhD. And I ended up at a small uh, startup, startup at the time called Google, became much bigger. And yeah. if it was, it was small at the time. It didn't, yeah. it wasn't obvious at the time it was going to be as big as it is now. So it was cool because I, you know, got a front row seat on history and That's history awesome. of technology and yeah. a, a company which became very important. Um, so I was at Google for about five years and, and then I, uh, left and I, I spent, um, about a year and a half campaigning in the presidential election, the 2007 eight presidential election for Ron Paul. And uh, I was really taken by uh, the values that he was uh, trying to educate people on in the United States. Um, 
sound money and non-interventionism, not, you know, meddling in the affairs of other countries. And, you know, with this recent news about Afghanistan and the withdrawal of, of US troops, I think he's really been proven right about the warnings he gave people. So I, I really wanted to help him and spread that message around the United States. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't go as well as I would have hoped. And I became a little bit cynical about the political process uh, and sort of left and went back to working on software uh, and startups and that sort of thing. And then in 2011, I came across Bitcoin. A friend of mine told me about it and uh, he gave me some Bitcoins. We had a bet with each other and uh I, I won the bet and he he wanted to pay me in Bitcoin and I had no idea what he was talking about. But my friend is a, a fantastic investor. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll take these Bitcoins that you're offering me. And he, uh, he, he told me I had to download some software. I had to download the Bitcoin core client and it started. This was just on my little laptop with a very yeah. bare bones laptop and it started running and, uh, the, the fan in my computer started whirring because it was really taxing my little laptop and it was downloading the blockchain. And, th- you know, this took several hours and then. And he uh, he showed me how to create an address, and he sent me some bitcoins. And he he showed me that he had sent me some bitcoins by going to uh, a block explorer, which at the time was very primitive. You didn't have any of the nice kind of user interface that they have now. It was just a bunch of numbers and strings. And he said, "See, I sent you some bitcoin." And I was like, well, "Okay," <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, so that, that that got me really interested in bitcoin because I was interested in uh, money and the economics of money and uh, especially gold. I, I've been interested in gold for a long time in the question, why does gold have any value? I, I thought that was a really profound question in economics that most people hadn't really devoted much attention to. And so that was kind of in the background in my head. And when I came across Bitcoin, I quickly realized that this was a new form of money. And, and so I wanted to understand how did this have any value? And it sent me down a rabbit hole, which I've kind of been going down for the last decade. Um, That's fantastic. And, uh, yeah. yeah. BJ, what, I mean, the, the, the fascination with gold, is that, is that because of your Indian um, hit, uh, ancestry or that? So that's the number one question about fascination with gold. And I guess, number two, were, were you, into Austrian economics before you started working with Rand Paul or that is what kind of drew you in his ideology philosophy drew you in and then you kind of went down the Austrian economic rabbit hole does that make sense yeah yeah so I was interested in Austrian economics before I I come across Ron Paul and I, I didn't think it had any political application because I thought most politicians aren't very principled people. They're after power. They're not necessarily after what's uh, good for the general well-being of society. And then I came across Ron Paul and I was just shocked that there was this politician who was really well-versed in Austrian economics and really understood the ideas uh, behind sound money and why having a sound money is good for society and why it's important for people to be able to save in something that isn't controlled by a central bank. Uh, And I was just shocked. And so that's why I got really excited. Uh, Regarding gold, 
Yeah, you know, I think probably some of the interest comes from my Indian heritage. Indians have been interested and obsessed with gold for thousands of years, and they still are. Uh, if you go to India, a lot, a lot of people will wear mm. gold and as both a status symbol and it's a way of carrying their savings around. Indians have had uh, a long history where the government has mismanaged their money and so they don't trust the the government's produced money. They don't pr- trust the rupee. Um, so Indians will keep a lot of their savings in gold. Uh, and I also had an experience that I've you know I've talked about with some other folks uh, on other podcasts about when when I was young, uh, my mother got sick. Uh, she had a brain tumor, and my my dad got really worried about raising two young kids in Australia. He'd moved to Australia when my sister and I grew up, and raising us without his family support network. So he decided he wanted to move back to India. And at the time, India didn't really have a, a, a very you know, well-functioning banking system. So there wasn't an easy way for my dad to transfer the assets that he had built up in Australia by working hard and saving over to India. And so the way he did it was he sold his assets in Australia and he bought gold and he bought a bag of gold that he carried to India on a plane. And I, I still vividly remember how stressed my dad felt carrying his savings in a bag. He actually tied the bag to his leg. So if anyone tried to snatch it, they would be taking his leg with them as well. Wow. Uh, and, and also, you know, g- going to India itself was very stressful because the bureaucrats that work there and, and the officials that you, you, you go past when you go through the airport, they're all incredibly corrupt. If given the smallest chance, they'll steal from you and they'll take your savings. And so going through the airport was incredibly stressful as well. Uh, so, so knowing my dad's experience of taking his wealth and taking it to India and, and, and transferring it in that way, I was already primed to understand the benefits of Bitcoin. The idea that you can transfer value from one person to another person on the other side of the world as easily as sending an email is a profoundly important thing to be able to do. Uh, And I had seen that as a child. And so I understood, okay, when I saw Bitcoin, this is important. Uh, and I, and I want to understand how it functions and, and why it has value. And so I, I think I had that priming, uh, as an, ex- my, my experience as a child to understand that this is worth looking into. When, when, so when you first came across Bitcoin in 2011, I mean, given your background, uh, how long did it take you to fundamentally grasp what it was? Oh, years, years and years. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I, I fully understand it yet. I think it, it, it is so complex. It's so multidisciplinary, uh, to, to really understand. I mean, you can understand things from a superficial level, from the level of how do I use this? Uh, because there are a lot of people who can recognize Bitcoin's just like money. And that's fine. That's a, that's a, uh, a reasonable way of understanding Bitcoin. In the same way that, you know, I can understand my car in the sense I can get in and I can drive it and I can use it. But if you want to understand how it works, uh, the theory behind why it has any value, you have to understand economics, you have to understand computer science, you have to understand game theory, you have to understand politics, you have to understand law. 
And very few people are multidisciplinary in that sense that they have a broad interest in a variety of different areas and are willing to uh, apply that to a a topic like Bitcoin. So I still feel like I'm learning new things. Um, I had a background in computer science and economics, which is a big piece of it. Uh, But I would say I, I didn't have a decent grasp on Bitcoin for at least three years. Uh, and I've been slowly improving my understanding over time to the point where in 2017, I felt like I had enough of an understanding that I could explain to others why Bitcoin was important and why it was valuable. And so I wrote an article, which is called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, which explains uh, the it provides an economic framework for people to understand why this thing has any value. Uh, and I, I recently updated my article and it's now a book. Uh, it's been expanded and, and updated. Uh, so, yeah, I, I still feel like I'm learning new things from folks and picking up new insights. Uh, so I would say to anyone, if it seems complex, it is. It is complex and it, it takes some time to get into. Uh, but we're also in a, at, a, at a better place as well. There are so many great resources and so many great educators. I mean, you're doing your part as well. You're helping to educate people in, in your field. And I'm sure there are a lot of doctors uh, who are interested in Bitcoin because Doctors tend to produce a lot of cash flow uh, and they have the question of where do I keep my money? Where do I keep my savings? Um, so, yeah, I think we are now at a better place for people to pick up and understand Bitcoin and perhaps not take three or four years before they can get their head around it. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my hesitancy in asking that question because uh, we want to try to keep things simple. But, you know, what? Uh, why do you think there is still... Um, hesitancy or a lack to a lack of trying to understand what bitcoin is um and is it will the time frame between introduction to implementation get shorter and shorter for people or is there always going to be a fixed amount of time that people have to gut through this amount of time to understand what bitcoin is before they go all in i mean i think once we get to the top of the adoption curve uh you're not gonna have a choice that that time frame is going to be very short but um will that time frame get shorter and shorter or do you think it's going to be fixed for a period of time it's time to play who wants to be a satoshi millionaire when do Bitcoin block rewards change for miners? A. After 300,000 blocks. B. After 430,000 blocks. C. After 210,000 blocks. D. After 180,000 blocks. I think it really depends on how deep people want to go into understanding Bitcoin. And you're right, once it gets to mass adoption, most people will only care to understand it fairly superficially. Like most people don't understand the dollar. Most people do not understand how the dollar works or how it's produced or who controls it or any of that. They don't understand the interaction between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and repo markets and uh, T-bills or any of that complexity, but they, they've figured it out enough that they can use it. And I think when you get to widespread adoption, most people won't really understand Bitcoin, but they'll understand they need to have some. If they want to go to the grocery store and buy bread or milk, they need to have some Bitcoin. I mean, we're talking about, you know, 
I think, well into the future, perhaps a few decades, but eventually everyone will have some understanding of Bitcoin because they'll be forced to, as you say. And that, and that, I guess that was going to lead to another question. I mean, how long do you think it's going to take for hyper-Bitcoinization? Um, you know, I think about the generations that we have, and I guess the first digitally native generation is uh, the millennial. Uh, is it going to take another 10 to 20 years for that generation to mature before we see mass Bitcoin adoption, or do you think it's going to come quicker than that? Or would world circumstances or macroeconomic forces force a, a quicker adoption? My gut feeling, I mean, I can't say for certain, but my gut feeling is this is a multi-decade process and that, you know, for, I think eventually Bitcoin will become the world reserve currency in the way that gold was uh, in the 19th century. And actually gold had been used as money for thousands of years before the 19th century. Uh, but I do think it's going to be a, a multi-decade process. It's going to be, uh, like as, as you say, there's a generation of kids growing up today who don't know a world without Bitcoin. And, and they're going to grow into maturity in, in the next decade or so. And, and their whole world view will be shaped on the idea that there's this digital store of value that they can keep their savings in. And they know that the, those savings can't be debased by their government. Now, this is not so obvious an idea to a lot of Americans. We tend to take for granted that we have a fairly stable economic system. Uh, but in countries... Uh, various countries around the world, it's much more obvious. Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, for instance, where they've had pretty severe economic mismanagement. When you explain the importance of Bitcoin to them, it's much more obvious. Uh, but the United States is not immune to uh, economic disasters. We, we saw a major one in, in 2008. And if anything, the economic imbalances that have uh, built up in, in our economy over the last decade are even bigger than what caused the crisis mm -hmm. in 2008. So the need for Bitcoin is even greater now. Uh, and you could be right. It could be some economic catastrophe happens that forces people to look for a lifeboat, a financial lifeboat, and they, they run to Bitcoin in droves. Um, Right now, people are sort of slowly but surely coming to Bitcoin and the, the number of people who use Bitcoin, who keep their savings in Bitcoin is growing slowly but steadily. But it could be that we get to some exponential mo moment when everyone jumps on board uh, all at once. Uh, it's unclear. My gut feeling says it'll, it'll, it'll be a, a longer process and uh, it'll be something that benefits my children and their grandchildren. <laughs> Fair enough. VJ, uh, if you look at uh, just going back to your childhood and looking at, you know, the headlines today with um, Afghanistan falling to the Taliban, I mean, what uh, get use this as a case study for, you know, the human tragedy that's that's unfolding before us right now. Um, how could Bitcoin be used in a situation that we're seeing right now in, in Afghanistan? Well, Afghanistan is a tragic case of a country that's been, uh, you know, intervened in many times by different countries. And it's this constant, constant uh, uh, tragedy and, and uh, political instability. And, and the people there are facing a situation where how do you keep your savings safe? It's especially important if you're trying to 
escape Afghanistan and we, we see these very um, disturbing images of people at the airport in Kabul today. They're so desperate to leave. A number of people held on to a US military plane that was leaving. Uh, that's how desperate they were to leave and they, they died falling off this plane. So, you know, a, a universal human value is to feel safe and secure in your person and in your savings. And people want to be in a place where they feel that way. And the ability to keep your savings in something that can't be taken easily or confiscated is a very powerful tool. Uh, and, and you can imagine uh, if you were someone in Afghanistan uh, and you're fleeing the Taliban, uh, if you had the ability to keep your savings and get on a plane and leave and have your savings when you arrive in another country, that's a very important thing. Or, or going back in history, if you, you think about the Jews who were fleeing the Nazis in World War II, many of the Jews who made it to America and had, you know, managed to save their lives and the lives of their children had nothing. They, they had the shirts on their back. They weren't able to take anything because, I mean, it's hard to move physical goods and there are a number of customs, places where they would, you know, search people and take their wealth. Um, the ability to carry your wealth and get to another place safely is, is a very powerful thing. And it gives you a lot more freedom because you can choose to move to the place which treats you best. Uh, and I think that's a global movement that's happening now where people are considering the place that they're living and saying, is this the country that's treating me best? Is this the country which, uh, which is uh, providing the best political environment and the best policies for my family to thrive. Uh, and even Americans are making this decision now because they're, they're realizing, hey, maybe there are other countries which aren't so poorly run that I can move to. You know, you might be an American and you might consider moving to, say, Singapore or New Zealand. Or uh, And having Bitcoin allows you to make that move and to have that choice. Uh, maybe you don't want to make that choice, but having the freedom to make that choice is a very powerful thing. So, I mean, as we try to work towards mass adoption of Bitcoin, I mean, is that maybe the way to approach it versus the monetary is the morality of Bitcoin and, and the freedom that it offers you? So it seems like, you know, when you're on Bitcoin Twitter, it's all about number go up. Not It's not completely about number go up, but, it, you know, the monetary and economics behind it. But I see a, a significant moral case uh, for gravitating and adopting Bitcoin over fiat and also just the freedom aspect of it. I mean, is that a front that we need to fight on that on the, for Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people feel that way and are so passionate about Bitcoin because of that, not because uh, it's a get rich quick scheme. And, and uh, um, actually there was someone who had a, a good uh, a little epigram about Bitcoin that I love saying, which is it's a, it's a moral revolution uh, wrapped in a get rich quick scheme. Mm. Uh, so a lot of people come to Bitcoin because they think, oh, wow, this is a great way to make some money. It's a, a quick trading opportunity. And they start going down the rabbit hole and, and, and recognizing Bitcoin's importance. And one of the things I find most fascinating is that it, it, it tends to change people's behavior and preferences. When you find that you can keep your savings in something that can't be debased or taken away from you, a lot of people will start saving more. Uh, instead of living a lavish lifestyle and spending money and being dissolute, uh, they, they start 
um, reining in their spending and saving more and even thinking about more, thinking more about their health. Uh, and I've seen this in, in numerous people. I would never have predicted something like this. It's not something that I could have, you know, looked into the future and said, that's what Bitcoin's going to do. But I've seen it happen, uh, where the, the ability to, uh, have something that becomes more valuable over time and keep it and possess it has a transformational effect. Uh, on individuals. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I've written about this in uh, the the Great Bitcoin re- Reset, and and you you think about what we could have accomplished in the past hundred years had we had something like Bitcoin versus the the waste of, of fiat. I mean, that's just an incredible uh, incredible thought. Um, I, I want to ask a question about that, but BJ, for someone who is probably not as versed in Bitcoin. Try, try to, as simply as you can, uh, as compelling as you can, explain what Bitcoin is. I think that the simplest explanation I like to give is it's a new form of money. People may not know how money works too deeply, but they understand money's function in society. Uh, Bitcoin is a, a digital form of money that exists on the internet. And uh, Bitcoin has a lot of properties that made gold suitable as money for a long time. Many people don't realize that gold was money for most of human history. uh, And gold had properties that made it very desirable to be used as money. So to step back a little bit, what functions does does money have uh, in society? Well, one, it's a store of value. People keep their savings in money so that they can keep those savings into the future and use those savings for something else. They use it as a medium of exchange. People use money to exchange for other goods like bread and milk at the grocery store because doing a barter transaction is so much more efficient. Like very, very primitive human societies used to trade with barter. So if you were, if you're a fisherman, you'd get some fish and you'd go to a farmer and say, I'd like some apples. That's very inefficient because the, uh, the apple grower might not want your fish. Uh, so you have to look for something else that they, they want to trade for. It's very inefficient means of trading. And money also functions as a unit of account. And a unit of account is the good in which everything else is priced in terms of. So when you go to the grocery store, currently uh, the goods are priced in terms of dollars. They're not priced in terms of shoes or baseball cards or anything like that. They're priced in terms of dollars. So that's the other function of money. Uh, so, so Bitcoin is a new form of money that's emerging uh, and it, it's starting to take on the first role that money has as a store of value, the nascent store of value. Monies, as, as they evolve through time, don't ha- they don't immediately have take on all of these functions of money. They have to take on first the store of value role, and then once it's widely sort of viewed as a store of value, it begin- begins to be used as a medium of exchange. And eventually, once it's widely used as a medium of exchange, money will become a unit of account. So Bitcoin is in the earliest stage of the evolution of money. I believe it's going to get to fully fledged money to the point where it is a unit of account for the entire world. But right now we're very, very early on and people are starting to use Bitcoin for that first uh, important use of money, which is store of value. So do what what disadvantages would a current <clears throat> uh, fiat currency like the dollar have against Bitcoin in the digital environment? And what sets Bitcoin apart from, you know, a central bank currency or a digital coin like um, 
uh, China is about to roll out. Uh, so maybe explain those those uh, differences and what kind of sets Bitcoin apart uh, from those. Yeah. So I, I want to step back again for a second and just discuss the attributes that make for good money, because uh, historically there were certain attributes that were valued by people when they chose money to use. Uh, and these attributes have been known for a very long time since the time of Aristotle. They're things like divisibility. Uh, you want to be able to divide your money into smaller units because that's helpful for trade. Portability, you want money that's easy to move around. So gold is better than cows, for instance. Uh, cows were used in some societies as money um, to, uh, briefly before gold supplanted them. Uh, Fungibility, which is that every unit of the money should be uh, equivalent to every other unit. So gold is superior to diamonds because diamonds are irregular in shape and, and quality. So they're not very good at, for trade because every time you trade for a diamond, you have to look at it very carefully to see what, what the quality was. But probably the most important attribute of all is scarcity. Uh, because you want to keep your savings in something that you have a belief is scarce and can't be produced easily. So gold is far superior to sand. If sand were, uh, you know, money, then anyone could go to the beach and pile up a big uh, amount of sand and be rich. And so you having sand as savings, your, your savings would be debased very quickly. Uh, and, and along this attribute, Bitcoin really excels. It is far, far superior to any fiat currency because you can't create more of it. It's, it was designed in a way that only 21 million Bitcoin could ever be produced. So I can't take uh, a screenshot of a key or something like that. I, there's no way I can duplicate the Bitcoin or anything like that. No, no. It's as scarce as uh, something like the Mona Lisa, for instance. Uh, you can take a picture of the Mona Lisa, but that doesn't mean there are two Mona Lisas. There's one Mona Lisa. Uh, so there, there's one Bitcoin system and there are only uh, 21 million Bitcoins that could ever be produced on that system. And as of now, I think it's something like it's close to 19 million yeah. have already been produced. So, so not many more will be produced. Uh, central bank currencies are controlled by a government and governments have this very strong political incentive to create money out of thin air because it's costless. They can create new money without any cost. They don't have to go, you know, mine for it like you have to do with gold. Uh, and it, it's very, um, politically advantageous to create new money because you can give it to your friends and you can. And so what, you can, but what for, for a millennial, maybe a progressive millennial, you know, who cares? They let the government print as much money as they want. What's the, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that if you have money, the value of your money is decreasing and will decrease uh, very rapidly. And the people who get the money first, it's actually a very unjust system. If you're a millennial and you're progressive, you should care about the justice of this system. The people who benefit most of the banking system, because this newly created money goes to the banking system first. Uh, and there's this thing called the Cantillon effect where uh uh, money sort of distributes out into the economy unevenly and the people who have it first benefit a lot. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the Spanish discovered the new world and they found all this gold in Latin America and the people in Europe didn't realize prices were going up, 
But the people who benefited most were the Spanish. They came over with all this new gold and they were able to buy things up cheaply. And then as the money distributed into the economy, prices would go up and everyone else would have to pay higher prices. It's the same thing, except the money is being created by a central bank and it's going to the banking system. And the banks are getting this huge benefit of getting the money first. And then your average saver or retiree who's getting a you know social security check, the value of that money that they're getting has dropped substantially so by the time they say uh, spend it, they aren't able to get as much as they would have if that inflation hadn't happened. So slapping digital on a currency does not make it any better than a paper money. No, and it actually makes it much worse. Uh, I think there are very troubling signs that the, the nation that is pioneering this is China. And the the reason they want to have their own central bank digital currency is it gives them the ability to track every transaction. They they want to they basically building a panopticon, just a society where everyone is watched at all times and they know about how everyone behaves. And if you don't behave in the exact way that they approve of, uh, like if you have religious views that they don't approve of, they have a, there's a, a Muslim minority in China who's terribly, terribly treated. Uh, then they can track everything you, you do and they can confiscate your money very easily because they control the, the central bank digital currency. Uh, and they can know if you buy a certain thing that they don't approve of. Uh, it's very troubling. And I think that the move towards this kind of thing, it should really be resisted by anyone who cares about freedom. Uh, and it, this isn't just a Chinese thing. This is a movement across the world to uh, remove um, physical cash because physical cash is the one thing that governments provide, which allows mm-hmm. people to have a level of privacy in their lives, to go about their lives without the government knowing what they're doing. Um a lot of societies are trying to remove cash and move, uh, move towards a, a fully digital uh, economy. And it also gives them the ability to do things like make interest rates negative, which are, which is a crazy idea. So that, uh, you know, if you have money at the bank, the bank doesn't pay you interest, you pay the bank interest just to keep your money in the bank. Mm-hmm. So they have all these crazy economic theories that they're trying to, you know, cram down the throats of people in places like Europe. But they can't because, for instance, you can't make uh, interest rates deeply negative because what people will do is they'll take their money out of the bank and keep it in cash and keep it under the mattress. But if you don't have the ability to get cash anymore, if they make the society cashless, then they can try anything. They can do any kind of crazy experiment on us. Uh, So so this is why I'm uh, deeply concerned about the development of uh, central bank digital currencies. And while there are many benefits to having a digital currency, I would really like it to be a currency that's non-sovereign, that's not controlled by any nation state uh, and, and can be, you know, traded freely by people around the world without any interference. And that's Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the, the only alternative we have. And in your original paper, uh, the bullish case for Bitcoin, uh, you know, you mentioned the Lightning Network and Taproot was probably just a twinkle in somebody's eye at that point. But um, how how will Lightning, how will Taproot increase the um, non-censorability and the privacy of Bitcoin? 
Yeah, so this is getting a little bit technical, but um, the base layer of Bitcoin is fairly expensive to transact on. It's, you know, there's a fairly high fee to be able to send Bitcoins from one person to another. I mean, not it's not gigantic. You, you can do it uh, for 10 cents to a dollar. Uh, and for very large amounts, that's very cheap to be able to make a large payment without anyone's, uh, uh, without having an intermediary helping you do this. Um, but if you want to do a lot of small scale transactions, those fees can quickly add up. I should say that there's a, there's a reason that the fees are really high and that's, um, Bitcoin has a limited number of transactions per block. And the reason it does this is because the Bitcoin network aims to be very decentralized. Uh, and if you put all of these transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, all of these daily transactions that people do buying milk and bread, uh, the system would quickly become centralized because very few people would be able to run the Bitcoin software. Right now, anyone can get a very cheap computer, run the Bitcoin software and be part of the Bitcoin network. Uh, so the limit is that uh, at the base layer, you can't have very many transactions happening. Lightning Network allows a much higher number of transactions on a higher level of the financial framework. Uh, and most financial systems are built in layers like this. Like most transactions don't happen at the layer of the Federal Reserve, uh, the Fedwire system. Most transactions happen at a higher level, which is the credit card system, which is built on top of the Fedwire system. So this is kind of the equivalent for Bitcoin, uh, the, the Lightning Network. Uh, the Lightning Network is great as well because it adds a lot, uh, a level of privacy to, to your Bitcoin transactions. When you uh, send a transaction over the Lightning Network, it isn't recorded on the, the Bitcoin blockchain as uh, the base layer transactions are. Uh, so you can do uh, transactions with the Lightning Network in a much more private way. Uh, you mentioned Taproot. That's a upgrade to the Bitcoin protocol, which is which allows you to have transactions which are more private uh, so that you can have multiple people control uh, the keys for one Bitcoin and no one will ever know who signed the key that allowed those Bitcoins to move. And that that's a, a technology which... Uh, will allow Bitcoin to be more private in the future as people build wallets on top of this uh, new new uh, protocol upgrade. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see more and more privacy uh, move into Bitcoin um, so that we cannot be surveilled. And I think that's probably one of the biggest financial FUDs around Bitcoin is, you know, the speed of transactions. And that seems like Lightning and uh, Lightning in particular is going to take care of that FUD. Um, as it relates to uh, China, what we've seen with the migration of the hash rate and the banning of Bitcoin, do, do you think that that was the biggest FUD out there for Bitcoin and or uh, the, the whole ESG? Uh, well, let's take that as a separate question. Do you think that was the biggest FUD out there as a threat to Bitcoin, the Chinese um, threat? It, it was certainly a longstanding piece of FUD. I mean, almost since I got into Bitcoin, uh, people were talking about how China could shut down Bitcoin or China could control Bitcoin. Uh, actually, if you look at it from you know very high level, it was almost like the Chinese state was trying to help Bitcoin because for a very long time, 
they were providing cheap electricity, which was used by miners to secure the Bitcoin network for, you know, almost a decade. And then you had a lot of the mining power concentrated in China. And that was a little bit scary because it was like, okay, what kind of influence can China have on those miners which are situated in China? And at the point at which it became scary, China said, okay, we're banning mining in our country. And that had the effect of decentralizing all of that mining uh, capacity around the world. And it's a very good thing for Bitcoin because that makes it much harder to shut down or attack the Bitcoin network because the the mining capacity isn't in any one country anymore. Uh, so any country that tries to shut down Bitcoin isn't going to have any kind of effect. Um, and also it, it, it's really valuable because miners now will look for, uh, they'll factor in uh, the uh the, the jurisdictional kind of certainty they get from uh, being in, in one location versus another, they, they hadn't factored that in at all mm-hmm. when they were in China, that, that there was a risk that the Chinese government could, you know, shut them down. Now they all look for jurisdictions which are friendly and have uh, political policies which are friendly towards mining. And I think that's a really important thing for miners to do, and they're going to start doing that now. Yeah, you wonder if this bet's gonna really be something that China looks back on in 50 years and say they got the bet wrong. Um, as far as the ESG is concerned, do you think that that the Bitcoin community is addressing that concern appropriately? Do you think it needs to be reframed? Um, what, what's your whole thinking, if you have any thoughts about, around uh, the ESG uh, concerns with Bitcoin? I'd, I'm not familiar with that acronym. Could you tell me what the yeah, acronym it's the, is? Yeah, it's the environmental, social, governance, uh, you know, green yeah. and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I do think this is the most important form of FUD because I think it's going to be the most commonly used to attack Bitcoin over the next few years, uh, especially on the left side of the political spectrum. I think this is a, an argument that's going to come up over and over again. And it's deeply misleading. Uh, a lot of these uh, criticisms of Bitcoin being environmentally unfriendly, uh, a lot of these people have never looked at gold mining. I mean, gold mining is far more environmentally unfriendly. And if Bitcoin were to supplant gold, that would be great for the planet. You wouldn't have strip mining happening in places like Papua New Guinea, uh, where they just absolutely destroy the environment and put put all sorts of awful chemicals in. Bitcoin mining requires electricity, but much of the electricity that's used is in places where it's sustainably provided. Uh, Bitcoin miners are essentially looking for cheap electricity. And when they do that, they're looking for places where there's an overproduction of electricity. And Historically, a lot of that was in China. They had they had this massive overbuilding of hydroelectric dams in places like the Sichuan province, and, and that electricity couldn't be used because there wasn't enough population there, and you know government mismanagement created these hydroelectric dams that weren't being used. Uh, and power is not fungible. You can't take that excess power in the Sichuan province and then transfer it over to Texas and use it for something else. So that power is just going to waste and, and was essentially free. So miners would go there and use that for Bitcoin mining. Uh, and, and so they go to places like that and they go to places like Iceland where they have geothermal energy. Uh, they're just looking for cheap electricity. 
There are some cases where miners find cheap electricity in the form of fossil fuels, but that's not really the fault of Bitcoin. You could say if you really care about the environmental impact uh, of fossil fuel usage, then you need to get renewable sources cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, make solar cheaper, make wind cheaper, and make hydroelectric cheaper. And I would say use nuclear. Nuclear yeah. is uh, is a safe technology. Uh, it's improved dramatically since the, the failures that happened in the 70s and, and earlier than that. Uh, and we, we have access to essentially infinite energy if we have the political will uh, to push through these new nuclear technology, then, then Bitcoin should not be a concern at all. Yeah. Uh, so, so two things is I, I would say Bitcoin does not use anywhere near as much uh, fossil fuel energy as people think it does. And if you do believe that's a concern, then there's a better way of uh, fighting for that, which is to, to help push through technologies which will will make renewable sources cheaper. Yeah, well, well said. I mean, that's rather than saying no, no Bitcoin, uh, make it make it better. If you think you can make it better or produce it better, then then do that. And you know, we've been operating s- nuclear uh, submarines and warships for decades now. Uh, so I totally agree. Um, VJ, what uh, you know. Bitcoin fixes a lot of things. You hear that term, Bitcoin fixes this. And maybe if you've thought about this, what do you think Bitcoin will not fix? What will Bitcoin not fix? That's a good question. Um, the, the one that, this isn't answering your question, but the one that I had not thought about was Bitcoin fixing morality. I I think Bitcoin does have an effect on people's morality in in a good direction in terms of uh, improving their desire to save. But I think humans, uh, we are imperfect. Uh, We're born imperfect and we have tendencies which are unhealthy. Uh, We have tendencies to uh, uh, crave what other people have, uh, jealousy. We have a a desire for power, which can lead to all sorts of awful things. So I think things like warfare uh, are not going to go away. I think they'll just be harder under a system. I think eventually if we want to live in an ideal society, we have to fix ourselves uh, and realize that we're imperfect, flawed creatures. Um, And I think Bitcoin will provide a sort of base layer monetary platform that makes that easier. We now live in a world where the, the foundation that we stand on is is like uh, quicksand. It's a, a fiat money foundation, which ha- creates all sorts of awful incentives like for people to go out and gamble uh, because the value of their money is decreasing so cr- rapidly or or the kind of uh, financial shenanigans that happens with the banks or or the incentive to warfare because if you're um, you know one of these companies lock, like Lockheed Martin with a close connection to the state you can lobby for more money much more easily under a fiat standard than under a Bitcoin standard. Uh, so I think we'll have a better moral foundation, but we're still imperfect. Uh, and I don't think I don't think Bitcoin will fix our imper- imperfection as people. We just need to work on that ourselves. So do you believe in a Bitcoin citadel or not? Are you going to retreat to your Bitcoin citadel? Uh, <laughs> do, do you have, you know, do you have I, an island? Do you have an island picked out? 
I, I don't like the idea of retreating. I feel like society is better off when we engage with each other. And, uh, I mean, part of the idea of this sort of Citadel meme is that we're escaping kind of like an, a Randy and Ayn Rand wrote about Galt's Gulch where mm-hmm. all of the, all of the talented people escaped to this, uh, little community and took their skills away and the rest of society collapsed because they didn't have those skills anymore but I, I sort of see that as a tragedy in a way I mean even people who are flawed you want them to do well right and I think it's important for us to engage with others uh, and, and try to benefit all of humanity and all of society and that's one of the reasons I care so much about Bitcoin is that I, I feel like it's a technology uh, which will do that and benefit the lives of billions of people around the world by giving them a platform to do one of the most important things that anybody can do, which is keep the fruits of their labor safe into the future so that they can benefit and their children and, and their grand- grandchildren can benefit. Uh, yeah. And do you think that there's going to be a Bitcoin renaissance? I think so. I think just I'm so amazed by the transformation uh, Bitcoin has had on people that I know where when their mindset changes, when they realize, hey, this thing is finite. There's only 21 million of them uh, and, and it's going up in value and it could eventually be the world's reserve currency. I need to get as many as possible. And that means I need to stop spending as much. I need to live a more frugal lifestyle, mm-hmm. a more moral lifestyle and start saving more. Uh, and I've seen this in so many people that I, this is not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I do think it's going to produce a renaissance because if you have most of the world doing this, saving more, thinking more about the future, uh, that has a tremendous benefit economically uh when when people aren't sort of living that dissolute lifestyle uh where they're living in the moment and we really saw you know that accelerate very quickly during the housing boom where people were taking on loans and spending money that they didn't have uh and buying houses that they couldn't afford and driving fast cars that they couldn't afford that's a really i think immoral lifestyle uh, i think a moral lifestyle is to live within your means and and to support the people around you within your means and i think bitcoin really encourages that so i i think it will have there will be a moral renaissance as well as an economic one yeah i mean we started with the taliban and afghanistan and the morality of uh keeping your sovereignty and then we've ended with you know the morality of you know saving and and living within your means so there's definitely a moral aspect to bitcoin no question um bj we're going to be wrapping up here but i just a couple more questions for you so um do looking at your experience with ron paul do you do you view do you have an eye in politics for yourself for the future uh no i um i i think politics is uh a very dirty business and the ron paul was this incredible exception uh of someone who managed to keep his moral principles despite being in politics i think there's a very strong tendency uh in politics to want to compromise your principles to gain more power and the people who don't do that usually don't get much power and don't have much influence politically and i don't want to do that i don't want to compromise my morals uh so for for me i i want to 
work in other ways. And one of the big lessons for me when I discovered Bitcoin and after my experience with the Ron Paul campaign is that you can transform the world in other ways. And I see Bitcoin as a way of transforming the world through technology. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your budding uh, career in medicine um, after... <laughs> So we got we got to we got to we got to hear the story as a, as a surgeon. I got to hear this story. <laughs> so most of my family are doctors. My mother's a doctor, and good for my, them. Uh, yeah, my, <laughs> my a lot of my aunties and uncles either doctors or PhDs. Um, almost all of my cousins are doctors, and so I went to medical school because my parents are Indian. That you know, Indians really love the idea of their children being doctors, and I got into medical school and I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, and I was there, you know, learning some stuff. I still remember some of the stuff that uh, they taught me. And then after a few weeks, they brought the cadavers out. And I think this was a great thing, actually, because it really <laughs> what, it wanted to shock the people who weren't there for the right reasons um, or weren't ready to be doctors or it wasn't for them. And it did shock me. I mean, I wasn't frightened or anything, but... I did some dissection uh, and I, you know, I stayed for the whole lecture, but I realized that it wasn't for me. And, and my love and passion was for mathematics and for computer science. And that's who, who I was. And I called my parents and I said, I can't do this. This isn't for me. And they were, they were very supportive. Uh, and they said, you know, come on home. We'll get you, uh, we'll, you know, you can join the Australian National University, which is one of the great universities in Australia and the world, actually. And, and I studied mathematics and computer science. And uh, I, I have those memories with me, though, of learning a little bit of human anatomy. And That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the real question is, did, did you did you spend enough time with the cadaver to give it a name? <laughs> Actually, you know, it was interesting. They, instead of showing us the whole cadaver, they had one cadaver that had been dissected into several pieces because they didn't want to shock us too much because there, a lot of people have emotional difficulty seeing a cadaver mm. and recognizing it as a person and, and, and struggling with that because it was the first time that I had seen a dead body. Uh, mm. And um, for some people who, who have a deep sense of empathy, um, they have that connection and yeah, think sure. this is a, this is a person that it's gone. Uh, yeah. That can be very difficult. So it was really, it was a, but you know, one of the other students said, can you show us a full cadaver? <laughs> I didn't want, I wasn't really interested in that, but they, uh, they, they unzipped another one of the bags and we got to see uh, a full body and we got to learn a bit of the history of the person who donated their body to mm -hmm. science and to the medical community so that doctors could learn how to be doctors. And, uh, and that certainly made me feel grateful that people are doing that uh, and benefiting all of society. Um, but uh, yeah, we didn't get, get a chance to give it a name. <laughs> VJ, this has been a great interview. I, I know that people can follow you on Twitter. I, I think your book has just been released out onto Amazon. Uh, do you have any the bullish case for Bitcoin um, on Amazon? Um, do you have any other uh, ways that uh, you want to engage with people or any parting comments uh, before we before we before we end? Yeah, Twitter is a great place to find me. Uh, and anyone can contact me via Twitter. My uh, messages are open so anyone can send me a message. I'm always happy to talk about Bitcoin with anyone. And I've met so many doctors. I'm sure you have a large community of doctors who listen to you. And my family are all doctors. 
so I, I've had I've spoken to a lot of doctors about Bitcoin, and doctors I think have this uh, almost like a problem where they make uh, they have a lot of cash flow, and they need to think about where they should be putting their money. So a lot of doctors around the world have come to Bitcoin, recognizing it as a, a great place to keep some of their savings. So if you're a doctor, if you're uh, listening to this show, I'm happy to chat with you. Send me a message on, on Twitter. Um, and yeah, you can find my book on Amazon now. And I, I, my last comment would be, I think now is a great time to learn about Bitcoin. I, I think we're so early in this story uh, of Bitcoin transforming the world and becoming global money. It may sound far-fetched now, but you know the same thing could have been said about the internet in the 90s. Mm-hmm. If you'd said mm-hmm. the inter- internet is going to have a profound effect on the world. Someone in the 90s might have laughed at you. <laughs> uh, I, I think Bitcoin is going to have a profound effect on the world and we're very, very early on. So it's a, it's a great time to learn about it. Well, then I'll pin you down on a price prediction for this year. What, where do you think Bitcoin goes this year? <laughs> I, I'm not very good at price predictions. Uh, I don't generally like to make them. One thing I did was uh, Bitcoin goes through these hype cycles and they, they look very similar. They're just bigger each time. And one thing I did was I took the, the graph of the prior hype cycle and applied it to the current one. And if that, if we were to follow the prior hype cycle, we get us to a price of about 300,000. Uh, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Uh, but it's certainly possible. And I think it would be pretty cool if it did happen. Awesome. Thanks, my friend. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace. A little more about our Satoshi Millionaire game. The plan is to have a series of questions spread over a number of shows. At the conclusion of the series of questions, there will be an opportunity to DM the Twitter handle at Mission21M with the answers. The first person to DM with the correct answers will be the recipient of the 1 million Satoshis. The only way to receive them is via a lightning wallet, so make sure you have one that is set up. I hope you have fun playing. Thanks.